the Inclusive Growth Podcast, leading the conversation on achieving economic prosperity for all. Hello and welcome to the Inclusive Growth Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Progressive Policy. In each episode, we'll be taking a look at what inclusive growth is, why it matters and how we can make it happen. We'll take a look at how the live debates of the day, everything from the politics of levelling up to the economics of net zero, impact on our ability to enable as many people as possible to contribute to and benefit from increased productivity and shared prosperity. This is our first episode and I'm delighted to be joined by friend and colleague Ben Lucas, founder of Metro Dynamics, a consultancy, as well as two members of the CPP team, Head of Research Ben Franklin and Annabelle Smith, who leads our Inclusive Growth Network. Before we hear from our guest, Ben Lucas, I'm going to turn to our own Ben Franklin to tell us more about what Inclusive Growth is and how it links to the Prime Minister's commitment to level up the UK and build back better from COVID. Ben, is Inclusive Growth just another phrase we're adding into the mix or does it have a distinct meaning? Well, I think Inclusive Growth is kind of the principal challenge of our time. We had long run productivity stagnation before the worst uh, pandemic for 100 years. And we're going to be talking about productivity for the next decade. But against that, there's obviously rising inequality as well. And inclusive growth seeks to try and address both of those challenges. And I think it's probably one of the few terms and concepts that does. But it's not just a term and concept because this is happening on the ground as well in local places, too. So it's a it's 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 a dynamic concept. It's happening at the moment. There's lots of local areas we work with at CPP that are, are looking to implement their own inclusive growth strategies. Um, so it's absolutely something that's got a huge amount of legs at the moment. And how does it relate to the other terms being banded about in British politics? So if we hear about levelling up and build back better, how, how does inclusive growth, um, what, what distinctions should you make between those two, if any? Well, I think that this is a moment, isn't it? People say don't waste a good crisis. And I think that's where we're currently at. So the government has come out with a number of slogans, as you rightly, as you rightly mentioned, Build Back Better is one of those that's been used in, across the Atlantic as well. Um, and levelling up obviously has been this government's mantra. And that was originally coined um, just before the, the COVID crisis during the election campaign by, by Boris and his colleagues trying to ensure that they kept those former Red Wall seats Tory in five years time. Um, so there's a lot of slogans going around at, at the moment and they do relate to inclusive growth in some way in which they're trying to address inequalities. Now, obviously, levelling up is still an ill-defined term by this current government, and we're hoping for a bit more clarity around that, but according to the white paper that will hopefully come out towards the end of this month. Um, but certainly regional inequalities and, and the, the point that we should worry about the North and, and Midlands um, and productivity and development in those in those regions is really important. And increasingly so also within regions as well. You know, we hear about about London and and um, and there, there is extreme poverty in London, just as there are in other regions, too. So increasingly levelling up is also about within um, regional inequalities as well. I guess there's less in levelling up in terms of other inequalities, like gender inequalities, for example, which is something that CPP is working on, which can also have economic benefits from addressing those challenges, too. So I think inclusive growth may be a bit more broad reaching rather than just talking about the spatial um, elements of, of, of inequality. But there's certainly a lot of crossover between the concepts. 
Okay, so in a growth, inclusive growth seems to me, from what you're saying, something about tackling inequality um, and different types of inequality. But it has the, the word growth in there suggests that it's firmly an economic concept. Absolutely. Is that right. Absolutely right. I mean, you hear things about degrowth being banded around um, and uh, inclusive economy and all the rest of it. Uh, but really, inclusive growth, you have to be growing the pie as well. And that's a key thing. I mean, over, over history, we haven't had wage growth without productivity growth. And we have to have we have to have both those, th those things. You know, productivity growth is not the only game in town. And it won't necessarily mean that you have incomes rising at the bottom of the distribution. And that's ultimately what we're also interested in but you have to start with productivity growth and that's something that is a firm store mark of, um, of 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 inclusive growth as a concept obviously there's a lot there's lots of grand challenges that are happening in the world at the moment there's climate change and um, the big net zero agenda which we'll hear more and more about towards the end of this month and going into november we've got the pandemic and which was the worst pandemic in 100 years i've already already mentioned and um, we had furlough, we had potential mass unemployment. And don't forget, there's a million people that are coming off furlough, too. So there's a, a huge challenges around that to ensure that they get good work and good employment over the next few years. Um, and there's the health crisis that we're still getting to grips with. So I think this is a real time that people are thinking things need to be different. Things need to change to to try and rise to these to these challenges. So the real question now is, can we move beyond slogans such as leveling up and building back better to actually create some a real policy window for things to take place and for action to be taken both both nationally internationally I mean we saw the, the tax agreement the other week which I thought was a really interesting move forward and something I wasn't necessarily sure we'd see in in my lifetime maybe more could be done but certainly there is something about grasping the nettle at the moment which which seems to be the mantra of many governments including our own and let's hope we can get it done. So Ben, um, as a founder of Metro Dynamics, you do a lot of work with cities and cities have been a real driving force behind a lot of the momentum we've seen around inclusive growth in the UK and globally over a number of years now. Do you think that they have the resources and power needed to drive forward inclusive growth or levelling up um, as they would define it? Um, I think they've got some of them but uh, nowhere near all of them that they need. And I think that just thinking about what, what Ben was saying earlier, um, that the reason that levelling up feels to me an inclusive growth of such added importance, even greater, I mean, you know, we're living through extraordinary times. So there's no doubt that when you and I worked together um, on the Inclusive Growth Commission, we could see that the Brexit referendum uh, and its aftermath really put the issues around inclusive growth and levelling up centre stage. Um, but in a way, COVID has, has done that on steroids. So, you know, if you, if you look at um, most of the large urban areas in Britain, they are the areas which have had the highest caseloads uh, from COVID um, and the highest death rates. And so what that's exposed... Uh, are huge problems of underlying health inequalities that you've pointed to in some of your work. Um, and I think that's, to me, amplified the extent to which levelling up has to be both about people and about places. And so for cities, they're having to think coming out of this pandemic um, about what the long what their long-term futures are going to be um we've definitely seen some trends that have been accelerated as a result of the pandemic particularly 
in relation to what I would call peak office and peak retail, um, where I think in both cases we can see that what trends that might have otherwise taken 10 years um, to uh, develop have, have happened in the space of a year. Um, and what that probably means is that cities are going to have to think about how they involve their citizens in shaping a new future for themselves that has innovation at its heart, but also uh, better housing, uh, more affordable housing, uh, warmer, safer house, uh, homes that are less um, environmentally detrimental. And all of those things, I think, require a form of partnership working which cities are keen to make happen uh, with um, voluntary sector organisations, with local citizens and with investors. But they need government support as well, because one of the things that we've seen that's really been um, a hit over the last 10 years is the strategic capacity of places to be able to develop the sorts of investable propositions that would help address levelling up. And in particular, partly because if they're going to have the impact on inclusive growth, then there needs to be more than just the traditional capital projects. They need to be ones which are able to repurpose, for example, um, underused public space, shopping centres that, that are, are, not, no longer, are no longer viable in ways that creates affordable housing and not just um, housing for, for market rent, um, affordable housing, that creates jobs uh, in retrofit, for example, uh, and that requires much more complex blended financing options than cities have currently got at their disposal um, and where they're going to need um, some funding to enable them to do that. And I suspect that that is going to have to require more of a partnership uh, with government and not the kind of competitive bidding for tiny pots of money that we've seen uh, over the last few years. The language you use there around partnership is quite different even to that which you know you and I've worked on in the past around devolution there I mean we've talked about the relationship between central and local government um devolution seems to be off you know firmly on the back burner um but I'm interested in your thoughts on that and and whether and how we can reach that partnership model that you that you talk about devolution process has given places more confidence to develop the kinds of relationships which we saw when we were running the City Growth Commission. I was always struck by what one of the investors said to us, which was that they needed to see long-term stable leadership in places to give them the confidence to invest in those places. And devolution helped entrench that. What I think we now need to see is that devolution needs to be supported by a form of partnership working because we do need government to work with places on this. this. This isn't just about government either running competitions uh, or trying to do everything on its own. It should be about government working in partnership with places. And if you think about how most places dealt with COVID, in reality, they had to develop very rapidly a form of social and economic uh, management of their place that that pulled off an extraordinary thing, which was to effectively close their cities for periods of time and then reopen them again. Um, re requires behavioural change, uh, management, um, ex ex um, the mobilisation of resource to support the most disadvantaged communities. All of that is a platform that I think we could build on that isn't just about devolution, it's about local leadership. And one of the things that I think is really important to 
add to that process is to give people more of a voice in shaping what happens in their cities rather than for this just to be um, a process of, of office-led um, regeneration in cities. Rather, it's got to be something that people are involved in shaping themselves. And innovation, I think, really offers some opportunities there. So that sounds like it'd be quite challenging, both for central government, but for local government yep. as well, in changing how it operates or it has operated. Yes, I think that's right. I, th I think that, that we can only really untap the potential of the people in the places that are our cities if we work in partnership with them to help shape the future of our cities, for them to have a voice um, in the kind of affordable um, city that is one that everyone can live in and feels is, is for them. Um, and I think sometimes that hasn't always felt like that's the way in which cities have grown in the last 10 or 15 years. So, so for people to be much more involved in shaping the future of their own cities, I think it's a really important thing. I think a lot of cities now coming out of COVID are much are really determined to give their people more of a voice in shaping what their cities should be like in the future. And we know that historically, you know, one of the problems that British cities have had is that uh, whilst they don't generate the same level of um, GDP as the national average, they nevertheless outperform um, the hinterland areas around them. Um, but even that outperformance is often a reflection of commuters coming into cities, being part of the economy of that city, and then leaving in the evening. So the resident earnings um, in cities is often much lower, and that's the inclusive growth gap that needs to be closed. Fantastic, thanks so much. So I'm going to turn to Annabelle Smith now as um, our lead um, on the Inclusive Growth Network. Um, that's funded by the Joseph Rantry Foundation and supported too by Metrodynamics and the RSA and CPP, our hosts to that network. Um, Annabelle, I know from your experience um, previously at Bristol City Council, you've done a lot on engaging local people in, in, in the manner that um, Ben described, but could you just talk a little bit more broadly about what you see as the challenges and opportunities for places to lead on the levelling up agenda and, and, and how that can um, help create inclusive economies across the country? Yeah, so in my experience of uh, working in local government myself and also with our inclusive growth network, so that's 12 local and combined authorities all across the UK, including the devolved nations, um, local leaders wouldn't necessarily use the language of levelling up in their day-to-day -day work and they wouldn't necessarily refer to what they're doing to make their places and their local economies more equal as levelling up. So I think that points to the need for there to be more substance to the term. Um, but although they're not necessarily using the language, I think local and combined authorities up and down the country are prioritising the need to address socioeconomic inequality and using the levers at their disposal to level up their own places. Um, so, you know, for example, we've, we have Glasgow, uh, of course, host of COP this year uh, in our inclusive growth network. And while it's true that somebody born in uh, Westminster will have 10 years longer life expectancy than somebody born in Glasgow, it's also true that somebody born in the wealthiest part of Glasgow can expect to live for 17.6 years longer than somebody born, born in the poorest area of Glasgow. Um, and that gap's only widening. You know, we've seen that um, 
detail come out and being exacerbated as a result of COVID. So I think local leaders are really recognising the need to level up within their own places. Um, and, you know, in terms of the challenges of levelling up that they're recognising, I think Ben's referred to it and articulated it well, Ben Lucas, in terms of the limitations of strategic capacity of local leaders. Um, you know, we've had 11 years of, of disinvestment in local government, which has limited not only their abilities to provide frontline services, but also the sort of backroom functions and the kind of strategic planning capacities of local leaders. And I think that uh, local leaders, from what I can see working with the IGN and particularly uh, mayors, but I think also, you know, council leaders do this very well too, is that they're recognising the position of the authority not just as a sort of provider of, of services as it's traditionally conceived of, but as an enabling space um, and a convener of place and a convener of economy and communities. So they are kind of recognizing their ability as the sort of anchor institution to draw on the capacity and the collective capacity of a place. And you know, that involves citizens, of course, as key stakeholders, but it also very much involves, you know, private sector, public sector, VCSE and education sector as well. So I think they're sort of, you know, not necessarily turning that into an opportunity, but they're doing what they can with what they have. What would you say to someone who said, well, we're just coming out of um, a huge health crisis. We've got an we're trying to embark on an economic recovery when things are still very uncertain with the labour market. We've got climate change. We've got COP just around the corner. Surely if we're going to get to grips with these huge problems, we need a centrally driven response, centrally directed levers. And, and so much of the country has been affected that surely they'll all kind of work through in similar ways to, uh, to, to address very similar effects of all of those, uh, those, those issues? What would you say to them? Well, I think certainly there are commonalities that we can see across the UK. And I think certainly we need a cohesive long-term framework at the national level. But, you know, I think the kind of obvious answer to that is, is quite simple, and it's that local leaders know their places. Uh, they have a very strong understanding of the assets and also the needs of their communities. Um, and they are, you know, very particular to a place. Um, and I think particularly when you're looking at net zero and how we can make the transition to net zero just and fair for our communities, that's very much going to be driven on a street by street and a community community basis. So, you know, we need a framework to be set by national government. And, you know, we're also seeing, you know, we're in quite an interesting situation now whereby we have local leaders and places setting uh, ambitions for net zero that are far more, uh, the far sooner than those being set at the national level by national governments. So I think in the IGN, we have uh, the local ambitions to uh, decarbonize their places completely are sort of between 2030 and 2040, as opposed to the national target of, of 2050, which, you know, in itself is ambitious. Um, and, you know, we see that they're using the levers that are currently at their disposal to deliver on a transition that simultaneously addresses the need to level up their places and leave nobody behind. Um, so you see local leaders such as Andy Burnham speaking quite strongly 
to uh, net zero needing to be a, a catalyst for um, leveling up itself. And I think uh, local leaders are already innovating around that in the absence of, you know, a strong, coherent, long-term national plan. Thanks. And then, and then one last question for you before I come back to, to ben, um, both Ben's. Um, is, you know, we're at the beginnings of uh, a potential cost of living crisis, which is largely being driven by rocketing energy prices, all of which is a little bit inconvenient um, for the government ahead of COP26, um, as questions are being asked as the extent to which um, central government will or will not bail out, you know, high carbon intensive industries, um, particularly steel, but, but others. How does government navigate that and and do you think some of the flack around the potential contradictions in the idea of a just transition might kind of blow back on local government as well as national government what would your advice be to IGM members trying to tread that narrow path I think it's a really important point that you know often we see at the moment this kind of relentlessly optimistic narrative around what's being referred to by many as, you know, the green industrial revolution and that, you know, it's going to be this utopian uh, future whereby everybody's going to have green jobs and, you know, high paying green jobs. And we can see that with kind of Boris Johnson's high paying jobs narrative at the moment. Um, but, you know, we need to use that as a catalyst for making our local economies fairer and more inclusive. I think, you know, in terms of national government, there does need to be an enhanced, I think we can't kind of shy away from the fact that there needs to be an enhanced partnership uh, between the UK government and regional and city and local authorities to accelerate the transition in a way that's fair. So I think if we look to Scotland, uh, Scottish government does that quite well with its Just Transition Commission, um, working very closely with local authorities. So in terms of you know what, what local and regional leaders can do now, I think they are doing a lot of it incredibly well in incredibly challenging circumstances. I think you know they, they're working with national government to recognise the unique position of, uh, in the labour market of those who are and will be affected by the transition. Um, and supporting them. So, for example, North Ayrshire, um, they're working with, North Ayrshire is a member of the IGN, they're working closely with Scottish government and they also have a local uh, Just Transition Fund, a Green Jobs Fund, which supports those in the labour market who are affected by the transition. Uh, I think we're seeing uh, a big rise of local leaders working very closely with businesses and with the private sector to ensure that they're sort of pulling their weight. So you see uh, things like good employment charters, which, you know, Greater Manchester's is, is the sort of the most well-known one, but, you know, all across the country leaders are doing that. And in that, they're making sure that, you know, new green jobs don't become an extension of, you know, what's being referred to as the gig economy um, and sort of, you know, focusing on living wage and things like that. I think, you know, just coming back to the point that local and regional leaders are conveners of place. Um, I think they have a very, very important kind of soft powers role in uh, you know, leveraging their relationships with anchor institutions to enable every sector to play their role. Um, and also, you know, coming back to what Ben Lucas was speaking about earlier around giving citizens the guidance, the direction and the support that they need 
to navigate the transition and importantly to have a say in policy making around it. So another one of our IGM members, North of Tyne Combined Authority, uh, they've set up a citizens assembly on climate change. We are also seeing uh, Glasgow doing some fantastic work around that as hosts of COP. They've set up a citizens panel on uh, what the outcomes of COP for the city will be. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, ben Franklin, you um, lead our levelling up outlook that we've been publishing for the last year or so, trying to hold government to account for the many claims uh, it's been making and what it's doing on levelling up. Where do you see these tensions playing out between the kind of push for net zero and, and the kind of implicit um, commitment to leave no one left behind if we're going to level up the UK and fulfil our COP? Um, 26 leadership role yeah i mean it's, it's a it's a massive challenge to be able to do that i mean a lot of the communities i mean we're, we're currently doing a bit of work exactly on this trying to look at which places uh, will face the most disruption from net zero and clearly that's a mixture of both having an economy which has got a, a high concentration of high polluting industries but also a number of characteristics of economic vulnerability already maybe low wages low low skill levels um history of unemployment and inactivity as well and there are lots of places that fit that bill so it won't just be a question of the market providing new low energy low carbon jobs i mean at the moment that sector is about a hundred thousand full-time equivalents um so it's a it's a tiny sector you know so as much as the government wants to say actually we'll just shift out of these high polluting um, jobs into these other jobs that's nonsense you know that's not going to happen over the next um, five years um, let alone 10 years so um, there's a real question about how we do that shift in a in a just way and it won't just be about what people currently think of of is green jobs which is you know working with wind um, turbines or um, hydroelectric it will be about low polluting jobs in um, in other industries, in the services sector, for example, which are really important as well, making sure that they are good, good jobs. Great, thanks. And Ben Lucas, I'm sure you've got thoughts on this pertinent point, particularly with your work with Convention for the North, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes to the heart of the levelling up challenge. After all, if you think about levelling up and where it has political bite, much of it goes back to what happens, what happened to the closure of uh, coal mines in particular, but also heavy industry in the 1980s, when the, whatever else you could say about that period, you couldn't say that there was a just transition. So if you're thinking now, if you look at the North, for example, half of uh, all of the heaviest industrial clusters, carbon emitting heavy industrial clusters are in the North of the UK, even though the population of the North is nothing like half of the UK. 11, the, the level of carbon emissions is 11% higher uh, across the North per person than it is uh, for the UK average. So it, the North has a both a heavy concentration of carbon emitting industries and also 50% of uh, renewables energy concentrated there and a lot of opportunity. One of the areas I think there is also a very specific opportunity in is that the North amongst other things, has many um, large cities. And cities, not just in the north, but all over the country, tend to have very high, high levels of carbon emissions from housing, something like 40% of all 
carbon emissions come from housing. And so it feels to me that one of the things we really do need to see is, is a very significant retrofit program across the UK as a whole that not only helps create a just transition because it, it uh, reduces people's fuel bills in the long term because it makes houses uh, more affordable and more efficient, but it can also um, generate a whole new uh, level of jobs. So in the north, we calculated uh, based on some work that was done in the northwest that something like 400,000 jobs could be created just in retrofit if if the right level of investment was undertaken across the north so it's a mixture of thinking about where the new jobs could be and thinking about what the transition will need to be for for the uh, industrial clusters which are working together now on this over a long period of time through things like carbon, carbon capture and storage through to um, you know, blue and, and then green hydrogen. All of that needs to be part of this strategy, but there needs to be an honest conversation about what the planning will need to be for that and the timescales. Well, we're just going to open up really to, to a wider discussion. And I guess, you know, just a week or so ahead of the um, uh, spending review, and we've got the levelling up white paper that is um, hotly anticipated, at least by those of us in this policy community. I guess what one thing I'm, I'm interested in is, you know, if we could put to Rishi Sunak, who, to whom um, uh, net zero was notably absent by his recent party conference speech, what would we be asking of him uh, when it comes to, to kind of that planned just transition? How would that be linking to the levelling up agenda now being spearheaded in Michael Goh's department? I would say, as, uh, as I said just before, a plan. Um, and it does feel to me that the two great challenges of our time are levelling up or inclusive growth. Um, inclusive growth probably is a fuller definition of it, but let's use levelling up because that's the government's language and net zero transition. So the question is, how do we think about the relationship between those two? Um, and uh, there are opportunities, undoubtedly, um, in some of the um, new areas of development that could happen as a result of net zero transition, whether that's um, new, um, the development of, of supply chain clusters and jobs associated with hydrogen, um, renewables, um, small modular reactors um, or retrofit, as I was talking about earlier. But the other part of that equation is to think through what that means for existing industries uh, and their transition path and what kinds of um, skills and employment system we're going to need to create the future jobs that we can all see we're going to need as we get closer to 2050. Uh, and what I would like to see is those two great imperatives of levelling up and net zero transition start to come together, but with an honest discussion about where the trade-offs are, what, where, the, where the planning will need to be, what the longer term pressures will, will be. Uh, and that needs to be something that engages both government uh, and um, cities, combined authorities and the business community, because everyone has got a stake in that. So I think the... Um... The big, the big things I would call for is more, more action on, on education and, and skills. Um, we, we had the education, the, the further education white paper last year, but everything seems to have stalled quite significantly since then. Um, but we know that 
through investment in human capital or people um, is absolutely critical to um, supporting both the economy, but also their own lifetime chances as as well. There's a huge lifetime productivity um, windfall to be gained by going from, say, a level one to a level three qualification. So let's try and enable everyone to be able to do that. And that will benefit them and the and the wider economy. I mean, Keir Starmer also, he he stopped short of the famous education, education, education in his um, Labour speech, but then he didn't say anything about education after that. So we really do need a drive for this right now. If we're serious about levelling up, we have long heard about the, the disadvantage gap in terms of educational attainment at school level as well. Um, so let's really try and get to grips with it. Again, we only had one piecemeal policy announcement um, by the Tories, which was the £3,000 amount given to teachers for teaching in the north although what that really amounts to we can't really be sure whereas at cpp and we've been working with the northern research group of um, of conservative mps we've come out with more of a, a a more dynamic policy agenda which includes enhancing the pupil premium as well and expanding that significantly to, to primary schools and to some extent to secondary schools too but a whole host of other things could be done on the education front so i think it's really time that we we go we go full throttle on education and just a word on health spend as well because the 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 risk is that we only become a public um we we only become a a public sector that spends on health right that's that's the real risk at the moment and that will come with an opportunity cost i think by 2030 we're expected to spend something like 40 percent of public spending on the on healthcare. that that for me is not a sustainable amount if you want to do other um productivity enhancing things in in an economy including preparing for a just transition which as the obr has 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 shown would be fiscally disastrous if we don't get to grips with that soon. So I would say more action on education, more action on a on a just transition as, as key things for the for the spending review. Thanks. And finally, Annabelle, I guess my question for you is, you know, what would a good spending review look like for the places that you're working with? I mean, you know, I'm sure the kind of obvious and first thing that local leaders across the UK would say is, you know, put an end to local government disinvestment that we've found, you know, has been happening over the past 11 years. And I think lately we've seen uh, local leaders from, you know, across the political spectrum taking issue with these beauty contests of having to bid for, you know, increasingly small pots of money and, and, you know, jump through hoops around that. So I think we need much more sustainable funding mechanisms is the obvious one. But I think also, you know, in terms of linking up the, uh, you know, decarbonising our local economies and the just transition um, and levelling up, sorry, I think that, you know, our national policy and regulatory frameworks really need to be revised and coordinated to enable a much more effective partnership between local and national government towards net zero. And I think that we need uh, a real kind of strategic framework for that. So uh, I think many of our members of the IGN would like to see a UK-wide Just Transition Commission that explicitly links, you know, Rishi Sunak and, and Michael Gove's two departments together Uh, around that agenda um, and specifically, you know, to support local leaders for access to finance um, to because we know that, you know, it's not going to be possible to finance the transition purely through uh, public funds. So I think that is is a key one and that's crucial. Well, we've covered a huge amount of ground um, in this, our first uh, podcast, the Inclusive Growth podcast. Um, And we've talked about 
the relationship between inclusive growth as a, as a term that's been around longer than levelling up, but the fact that we are, um, many of us, leveraging the interest and opportunity that government sees around its levelling up agenda or building back better to really pursue ultimately what are many of the same outcomes, which is enabling more people to benefit from um, shared prosperity in a way that we haven't seen, um, particularly in recent decades. So it just leaves me to say thank you to our guest, Ben Lucas, founder of Metro Dynamics, and CPP members Ben Franklin, head of research, and Annabelle Smith, inclusive growth network lead. And thank you for listening. You can find out more about CPP and inclusive growth on our website. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and join us again for another episode of the Inclusive Growth Podcast soon. Thank you.